Thanks again for joining us for this Bible study in the book of Colossians. If you take your Bibles, please, we're headed to Colossians chapter 2. While you're turning to Colossians chapter 2, let me take you back into some history that some of you may be familiar with. There was, back in the 60s and 70s, a very popular TV show that was nationwide, very uh, recognized, the... the uh, Master of Ceremonies, the host of the show, Alan Funt, would often set up different scenarios and different scenes where they would pull pranks on people and record their reaction. And then after these people have had this reaction, they'd say, smile, you're on candid camera. They would do settings in grocery stores, doctor's offices, airplanes, malls, all kinds of situations. Well, during the heyday of that program, Alan Funt and his family were going to go down to Miami, Florida for vacation. So they gathered together from Newark, got on the plane, and traveled down to Miami. And as they were traveling, something strange happened. Again, this was in the early 70s. And there was a period of time that there was plane hijackings that became very popular in the United States where people would take over the plane and demand that they be flown frequently to Havana, Cuba. Well, during this flight, Funt reported that what happened is he saw this frumpy man in a suit get up and grab one of the stewardesses and push her forward. People were a little bit like, what's going on? But nobody paid too much attention until a few moments later, the airplane pilot announced over the uh, overhead speakers that they were being hijacked and that the hijacker was demanded that he be flown to Cuba. Well, the people started to panic. People were screaming. The stewardesses were trying to get people calmed down. And then one of those people on the plane stood up and recognized Alan Funt. And her response was, this is just a game show. This isn't really happening. Look at it's Alan Funt from Candid Camera. She convinced everyone that this was a prank being staged by the TV studio. Funt argued. He said that he had nothing to do with this. But the people were not convinced. In fact, in the reports that happened afterwards between the stewardesses who are now so excited that they were going to be on TV and the other people who were flying, the people started started to have a party. In those days, people would walk around the plane. And so the people got up and they started getting sodas and some hard liquor and celebrating to the point that there was so much commotion that when the hijacker heard all the noise, he opened up the door from the cockpit to find out what was going on. And the people gave him a rousing applause and standing ovation for his role in this TV stunt. Well, only after hours did they realize it wasn't a stunt. It was the real thing. They were hijacked. They ended up down in Havana. And when they landed, Funt reported that a lot of the passengers were angry with him for deceiving them and letting them think it was a TV program and a stunt. Paul is writing to the people of Colossians, and he is not writing about something funny or a prank or a stunt. They were being hijacked spiritually. The church was being taken away from the truth and from following Jesus Christ by a number of false teachers who had entered in and were now taking over. They were teaching truth that really wasn't truth. They were passing on ideas that were dangerous ideas. And so Paul is writing to warn the people. In chapter 2, we talked about this the last time, that Paul writes, and in several of his statements, he says, hey, be careful, lest any man beguile you or delude you with false reasoning and with these enticing words. He even wrote, beware lest any man spoil or kidnap, hijack you. He writes further on in the chapter, let no man judge you. And he writes about, let no man beguile you or take away your reward. It's a warning. Chapter 2 is filled with all kinds of statements 
statements that you better be careful. Be on your guard. Watch out for these dangers that are taking place, the dangers that we talked about the last time we were in this book. But then what he does in the middle of the chapter is he returns to that idea of making Christ preeminent. Look at verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In the course of warning, he stops and he says, let's magnify Christ. Let's make sure we exalt Christ. And just like he had done in chapter 1, verse 18, where he said Christ needs to be the preeminence, here he is again talking about the greatness of Jesus Christ and why Jesus Christ should be exalted. There's two reasons given in this chapter and in these verses. One is because he is completely God. We looked at that last time, that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus, totally divine, not a, not a loss or an iota of difference between him and God the Father. He is divine, complete God-man. But then he makes another statement that we have yet to look at. He says in verse 10, and you are complete in him. I'd like to take our Bible study time and focus on that phrase in the context here about being complete in Jesus Christ and what that means and what that idea meant to those folk at that time to get a real good idea. Let's go back into the life of Jesus Christ. That word complete sometimes shows up in the gospel when it is describing how Jesus healed people, what Jesus did for them. Let me give you several examples in Matthew 9. When the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years comes to Jesus and asks for healings, Jesus responds to her and says, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you complete, our King James whole. He does the same thing when he's writing or talking to the Syrophoenician woman who's begging for her daughter and she says, Even the crumbs that fall from the table, the dogs are allowed to get. And so Jesus responds, he says, Woman, great is your faith, be it unto you. And her daughter was made whole whole or complete that very hour. We read elsewhere in Luke 7 where the Roman centurion is begging for the life of his servant and it says that as they were going back returning to the house they found the servant whole he says, that had been sick. Again, the idea of that completeness. We go into John 7 where Jesus has performed a miracle on the Sabbath day and the Pharisees and Sadducees are so upset. And he says, are you angry with me? Because I have made a man every bit complete on the Sabbath day. And then the crowds marvel. They wonder when they saw the dumb are speaking, the maim become whole or complete, the lame to walk and blind to see. Frequently, that word complete comes up with that another translation, whole. It's that idea that Jesus has restored somebody to their original form and completeness. Well, now he writes, in Colossians. After he's made some statements about these teachers and these false teachers who are trying to steer the people away from the truth, he says, I remind you, not only is Jesus the creator, but Jesus has completed you. You don't need anything that they're peddling. You don't need to listen to them when they say you need to give additional works or deeds. Jesus Christ has made you complete. Now, the word he uses in this passage could be a word that is used frequently in the shipping uh, vantage point, how people would complete the, the preparations for the voyage. The ship would be totally outfitted, that it would have all the sail, all the cargo, all the necessary oars and ropes and food that would be needed to complete the journey. And he's saying, you have been totally outfitted by Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to highlight a couple of words. He's saying, you all 
the idea. Very clear. All of you, not, not just a select few, like the Gnostics were saying, but all of you have been complete. And in fact, he says, you are something that you have in your possession. You have this completeness. You are the ones who have been completed in the past and still continue to be complete. A perfect participle. Very strong in the original language, stressing the idea that this is something that you have at present and it is never going to go away. You have the completeness made by Jesus Christ for every single one of you and it was done by him. And that seems to be the stress of this verse. That Jesus Christ, in him we are complete. The one who is the head of all principalities and powers. In fact, look at the next few verses. How he highlights Christ with all the pronouns that are used. Where he talks about in verse 11, in whom, that's Jesus Christ, in whom also you are the circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in putting off of the body of the sins by the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. He makes that very clear. Verse 12, he talks about the idea of buried with him in baptism, where are you also risen? With him, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Verse 13, and you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. He makes that same comment where he talks about in verse 14, that it was by Christ nailing our sins to his cross. The, the passage just goes on, talks again in verse 15, about he's spoiled the principalities and powers. He made a show of them, triumphing over them. Over and over, he is trying to get the readers to understand they don't need anything other than Jesus Christ. He is the key to getting into heaven. He is the doorway into heaven. He is life. He is breath. He is their sustenance. He is all they need. And he has made them and completed them everything they need for eternity and for living for the glory of God in this life. So as you go through this passage, Paul is pointing out three major provisions that Christ made for them. How he completed them. Can I highlight those for you real quickly? He says, first of all, that Jesus made you complete in that he provides all that religious rituals cannot provide. Now again, understand if we were back in Bible days. Paul is going to mention as he talks about the completeness found in Jesus Christ, he's going to mention in verse 11 and in verse 12 two very common and popular religious rituals that many of the people in the church were starting to have questions about. And some of the Jews were propagating the one. Some of the uh, Christians were starting to add to the other one. And they are very popular items that needed to be discussed at that time. One was circumcision and one was baptism. Let's deal with the first statement. He says, through Christ, in whom, verse 11, also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You and I understand. We know that that was a ritual that was from the Old Testament. It was done with the males. And it was to be a symbolic ritual that would identify them and those in their family with the covenant of God. And so they would have this practice where they would do a physical cutting of the males. And so that would be representative of something that was bigger and broader in application. In fact, the act of the circumcision isn't what he's going to stress here. He's going to talk about the spiritual picture that is involved. And he's going to bring it to say Christ has completed that picture. Let me, let me take you back to the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, when God gave this practice of physical circumcision of the males, he wanted them to understand, again, it was picturesque. It was symbolic of something that was much greater. The spiritual circumcision of the hearts. He talked about that in the book of Deuteronomy, that their hearts needed to be cut away to get rid of that desire to follow their own desires and their own goals. He talks about it in Deuteronomy, again, about circumcision of your heart. In the book of Jeremiah, he made statements along with many other texts and many other passages, but just to give you the point that he talks about how the Jews needed to have their hearts cut away from the desires of this world and to have a devotion to God Almighty where they would repent of their sins and what they would want to do is follow him with their whole heart in, in dedication of their, of their mind and their heart and their strength and their spirit. And so he even lamented in the book of Jeremiah how they were not circumcised of the heart. Even though they had this physical circumcision that all the males were undergoing and they thought it was something fabulous and it was something important and it it did have some merit in, in that physical representation. They missed out on the deeper picture. That's what he writes about in the book of Romans where he wrote to them, he says, he is not a Jew, which is one which is one outwardly, neither is he the circumcision which is outward in the flesh. And so his point is that the real Jews, those who are real followers of Jesus Christ, they aren't the ones who have just gone through a physical ritual, but rather he is a Jew which is one inwardly, where it is the circumcision of the heart in the spirit where the sin desires are cut away, where there's repentance. And so Paul, picking up on that idea in this text, he says, in whom? In Jesus Christ. He says, you are circumcision, not, not something that is done outwardly or by hands or a scalpel, but he says, what I'm talking about is that which is done by Jesus Christ in putting off the body of the sin, the circumcision of the heart, that which God had wanted done all the way through the Old Testament, that which God had promoted, not the outward the ritual outwardly, but an inward change where we say we're going to put away our personal desires of sin and self and be dedicated to the Lord God Almighty. Now he makes it clear. This is a circumcision made without hands. We're talking about a spiritual removal, a spiritual changing of the heart, a cutting away. And in this text, it is stripping off literally the power of the body of sin. That idea of our desires dominating in our, in our sin nature, uh, just taking over our lives. And he says, no, this is what Christ has done for you. You have these teachers coming in now, and they're saying, oh, hey, if you really want to be spiritual, you need to do this Old Testament practice that we Jews did. And you need to be circumcised. And, and Paul is writing, says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Jesus has done the real spiritual circumcision of your hearts already. You don't need some ritual. That won't make any difference. Christ is the one who has already removed, stripped away that power of sin in your life. So he talks about that one ritual that many people were promoting, and he's saying, no, no, no. Jesus has fulfilled all that religious rituals cannot fulfill. And then he makes the comment about baptism. Now, we all know what baptism is referring to. Baptism is an important ritual in the New Testament for believers like you and me who have put our faith in Jesus Christ to outwardly do a representation of what was happened inwardly. And it's important. It's commanded. 
It is a ritual, an ordinance that every believer should follow by saying, I have died to my old desires, and through Jesus Christ, I am raised to walk in newness of life. Now, with that in mind, that baptism was being taught. It was part of the Great Commission, that as they made disciples, they were to be baptizing them in the name of the Father. But what happened in Colossae, and what has happened in many churches since, is people have picked up on this religious ritual and made it something that it wasn't intended to be, just like circumcision. They have all of a sudden started very early in the church saying, oh, your baptism It'll help wash away the sins if you trust in Jesus Christ. Your baptism plus belief will help. In fact, many people today, if you ask them, hey, if you know, if you were standing before God, and he would say, why should I let you into heaven? Many are going to respond and say, well, I was baptized. They put a faith and a trust in not only believing in Jesus, but in the formula of baptism. The act of baptism, well, Paul is going to refute that. Paul is going to very clearly say, hey, you know what's really important here? The real importance is having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Watch what he does. Buried with him by baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through faith of the working of God. In this text, he's talking about that idea that baptism physically doesn't change hearts. But there is a working of God that does change the hearts. That which is all of a sudden coming, and just like the circumcision of the heart, this one removes this the union with Christ, this this work of God that unites you to Jesus Christ, that puts you in him as you're put into, as displayed by putting into water. He says, we need faith. And when we put faith in what Jesus has done, how that Jesus, he was buried, how Jesus was raised, and we trust in him, not in our deed of baptism, but in the work of Jesus Christ. And we do that by simply by faith, trusting what Christ has done. He says, then there is that great change. Christ is all we need. Our baptism doesn't add to the work of Jesus Christ. It's an act of obedience, but it doesn't make us more uh, prepared for heaven. It doesn't wash away any sins. And his point is religious rituals, even good ones, when the people add to them, when people start making them become something they're not, he says, then we diminish the work of Christ. And friend, you're complete in Jesus Christ. And there are so many rituals that people rely upon today. There are individuals who are relying upon the fact of going to church to make them uh, just prepared for heaven. There are individuals who think about baptism, even biblical baptism, that's done by immersion. Some will say, well, if I do this, then I'll be closer to God, and it'll make me better qualified for heaven. There are individuals who light candles. Many of us who have, who have he, over the years, gone to Portugal, we almost every time would visit Fatima and would see how people would add to these rituals of they believe in Jesus, but they wanted to light candles so that the candles could help take away sins and improve their lot in life. Or they would kneel on their knees or crawl along and say that I will believe in Christ, but I will also do these other types of acts of rituals. We have others who are in this world that will celebrate different feast days or fasting times or have religious rituals where they have wrote prayer that is memorized and saying that these rituals will add to our standing with God. We believe in Jesus, but we're going to also put all these types of activities and religious rituals into our pocket, hoping that this will make sure that we are guaranteed a place in heaven. And Paul is writing, he says, no, my friend, you're complete in Christ already. 
You're, you're good to pray. You're good to go to church. You're good to follow in baptism. But you are complete in Jesus already. So his point is, Jesus has completed us by doing what religious rituals cannot. Can I show you something else he highlights here? You are complete in Christ in that secondly, he removes all the consequences of our sin. He removes all the consequences that there could possibly be. Look what he writes. And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses, while blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. When we dissect this verse, let's do it this way to get our, our, our full understanding. This verse describes what we were before we were born again. He describes us and you while being dead in your sins. We understand what that meant. We were separated from God. That idea of death being separated from body, soul, or death in the Garden of Eden being separated from God. Or for all eternity, that idea of death being cast into hell, separated from the presence of God forever and ever. And so he says, while you were dead in your sins, you were separated, you were foul. We all understand that dead would be corruption. And, And we were unacceptable. We were unacceptable, unable to accomplish anything good that would bring merit to our lives. We were dead. And he says, while we were in that state, doesn't this remind you of Romans 5? But God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Very similar idea. What did Christ do for us? While we were dead in our sins, he has made us alive together with him. This is talking about giving us spiritual life birthing us into the family of God. With that idea of quickening us, giving us the ability to be able to have a relationship and fellowship with God Almighty. Not a result of what we have done, but this is something He has done. He has made us alive because of our union with Christ, our belief in Christ, that all of a sudden we now have life. Oh, we were dead in the past, he says, but he says, who were dead, he has made us alive. Something we possess right now. Now, let's add another phrase. He says, he has made us alive after having forgiven us. And so if you look at the sequence of the verbs here and of the phrases, forgiveness came, and once there was forgiveness, then he quickened us. After he gave us forgiveness, we were able to have that life with God Almighty once again. And so he says, this is forgiveness that Jesus provided. That's his point. Jesus quickened us. He gave us life. Jesus forgives us. And he makes it clear, this is to all of you in the church. To all of you believers there in Colossae, not just a select few like the Gnostics were saying, not just a privileged few like the Judaizers were saying, but rather all of you who have put your faith in with the working of God, Jesus Christ has forgiven you of all trespasses. All of them. You're complete in Christ is what he's saying. And by the way, his, the verbiage that he uses here has the idea that he has forgiven you and it is staying with you. And so we, none of us need anything else. We don't need anyone else. We don't need any other ritual or anything else. Forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ. He removes all the consequences of our sin. We are complete in him. He, he kind of builds upon that with another statement, which is very picturesque to the people in Colossae. He says, while blotting, blotting out or have, after having blotted out the tra- handwriting of ordinances that was against us. To get the full picture, let's go back into Bible days. Let's pretend we're living in Colossae. 
And uh, in fact, before I do that, let me remind you that if you have studied the life of Corey Tenboom, you'll remember she uses this phrase in a very, very uh, often in her writings, and she uses it to describe how the grace of God. Now, some of you may not have ever read her story. She is the one who her father and her sister and her, they worked in a watch shop and they, they were repair peoples. But they also did a lot of different types of Christian ministries and Bible studies. But when they were invaded, the Gestapo started, in a, started arresting the Jews. And these people, realizing that their faith in Jesus Christ would not per, uh, permit them to do nothing, they became active in trying to help the Jews to escape. They even set up a little room that was a hiding place there in Corey's bedroom and the people could crawl through that closet area where you see the opening at the bottom and get into that other that area that is that is artificially open just so you get a sense of what it is like that those people could hide in there well the story goes that they helped dozens of Jews to get out of the region and out of the hands of the Gestapo but one day all of a sudden she was approached by somebody who said I know of your charity works I know what you're doing and I need help my wife is and gave a story she was hesitant, but the man pleaded. The man was actually a Gestapo uh, fifth columnist. And so he got her to provide some assistance. The Gestapo came in. They arrested the family. They caught some Jews at their property. And uh, 10 days later, her father died in his imprisonment. She and her sister went through several months and years of imprisonment and, and even into a concentration camp. But she talks about her initial weeks of imprisonment. Where she was in a jail there, in the, and uh, it, was, it was being monitored by some of the Belgian officials. And one of them, who worked for the Germans, who was her interrogator. And the interrogator was asking her questions, and she took it upon herself to share her faith in Christ. And he became soft-hearted towards her and wanted to help her out, but he was still unable to do certain things because of the, the German authorities over him. One day he comes into the interrogation. And he lays before her a stack of papers. She recognized the papers immediately. They were some of the papers that she used in correspondence to others who were in her employ and in the system of helping the Jews to escape. There were some names of individuals who helped provide housing and secure places for the Jews. There was some paperwork and false uh, IDs and passes. And all these papers, she said, they were a witness against her. They were testimony that she was as guilty as could be and was going to be killed by the Germans for her activities unless they were erased. So she said to the man, she says, yes, they're from my home. I understand you've got them. And I'm asking you for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. The Belgian interrogator just stood and watched her for a period of time. And then what he did is he took that stack of paper, walked over to his stove in his office, opened up the door, and threw them in and burned all the evidence. It is that moment that Corey talks about how, she says, the blotting out of the handwriting of the ordinances were against us. All of the testimony against me was burned up. And that is what she says Paul was talking about in this verse. That idea of the evidence against us. Is taken away. Well, that's pretty clear, a pretty good picture of exactly what Paul had in mind. You see, in Bible days, if you were in debt to somebody, you would write an IOU. You write that on wood, you write that on a clay tablet, and so you would give that to your lenders with your signature or your marking, and that would indicate that you owe them. 
Well, to have it blotted out was the idea of you cancel out the IOU. That you'd put a big X through it was the frequent way of canceling. And so here he's t- she's t- or the, Paul is talking about how we have an IOU. The IOU is something that is written down that is against us. In fact, he talks about that idea when we could probably picture it with the idea of fines. Let's use that as our illustration. You have an indebtedness to God. You have a debt to him because, let's pretend these things happen to you. That is, uh, you shall have no other gods. Well, you lived back in Bible days, and you probably had some other deity. You had some family divine worship item. So now you're, you're, you're spiritually fined by God. You owe the law. You are in debt to it. No graven images. Oh, you have a statue. You might say, never take the Lord's name in vain. Oh, you, you, you use God's name in, an, in a rash moment. So you have another fine. Keep the Sabbath. Oh, there's lots of people that didn't do that. All of a sudden, there's another penalty, another fine. Honor your parents. Oh, you didn't do that. You're fined. You're penalized for that. You should not have verbal attacks against anybody. Not kill, but what about verbally slaying somebody? Then there's a penalty for that. Another fine. And then in what are we do in our heart? and another fine and not to take or to keep that which doesn't belong to you. And time and time again, his point is that we people, we have all kinds of penalty, indebtedness, fines that are spoken against us by the handwriting. The law, the, moral, the code of God in using even some of the Ten Commandments as an illustration. And not only is it bad that we've done it one time, but all of a sudden we add to this time and time and time again, and we repeat the disobedience, or we repeat the envy, and all of a sudden our our indebtedness is drastically increased beyond our capabilities to ever pay it off. There's nothing we can do, and the handwriting is against us. It is speaking out that we are guilty, and we owe a great debt. And with that in mind, He goes on and he says, okay, this is speaking against us. Literally, no hope. And then he adds another phrase to it. He says, contrary to us, it's the idea of a hostile debt collector. Somebody who doesn't let up and keeps on after you, keeps on after you. That's you and me. That was what we were like when we were dead in our sins. We we were greatly indebted to God for all the violations and all the penalties adding up. But, he says, not only has Christ forgiven us, but he says he's blotted out the handwriting of the ordinances that all of a sudden what happens is Jesus Christ X'd it all out. He he said, no longer do. He, He goes on and adds a phrase to it. He says, he took it out of the way. If we were doing this back in Bible days, the, the uh, picture would be really clear because sometimes we would write on pieces of wood or on clay or on skin. And because we didn't have any type of acids within our inks that we were using, it could easily be done that you could wash away the, the wood or the clay or the skin and you would totally erase what was written down. And he's talking about that idea of removing completely, getting rid, not just Xing it, but even taking away the original statement. That's what Christ did. And he says he has taken it away, the wording here, and he, it still stays away. That perfect idea, taking it and put it out of the way, never to come back against us whatsoever. Jesus paid it all. Jesus has not only done for us what religious rituals cannot do, Jesus has completed us in taking away all the consequences of our sins. 
But then he gives a third completing work of Jesus Christ. He defeated all of our spiritual enemies for good. Look what he says. And having spoiled principalities and powers. Now we all know that probably his reference here is referring to the demonic hordes that are against us. And they are against us. Jesus talked about in his high priestly prayer the night before he died. How he is praying that we wouldn't be taken out of the world. But rather we would be kept from the evil one. He's warned us that we are in a battle. We are in a warfare. That we need to stand with all of our might. Why? Because there's the wiles of the devil. That he is going to attack us time and time again. And he gives us an entire set of armor to help us to resist the devil. We are warned that the devil is as a roaring lion. That he's seeking to devour, to destroy believers in Jesus Christ. We are warned that he's an accuser of the brethren. That he wants our destruction. He wants God to turn against us. Not only is he trying to wipe us out in this world, but also in the next. So when we read and understand that we have an enemy that desires our destruction, to read these words of what Jesus Christ has done, how Jesus Christ has come to our assistance and our help in this spiritual battle, not only taking away what is a problem inside of us, our sin, He has also dealt with a problem outside of us, and that is Satan and his spiritual hordes. He makes a comment here that what Jesus Christ has done is something phenomenal at Calvary. That he defeated him at the cross, having spoiled. He goes on, talks about that idea of making a show of them, triumphing over them, having nailed it to the cross. That makes perfect sense when we think of what Jesus said the very day that he or the day before he was going to be crucified. He said, the hour is come. And then later on that paragraph, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He predicted that at Calvary, Satan would be defeated. That he would be, he would be rendered powerless against us. In fact, now Paul expands upon that and says, having spoiled talking about nailing it to the cross, having spoiled the principalities and powers. The word means to disarm. The idea is to strip of their power and of their influence. In other words, Satan does not have any claim against us. He does not have any power over us unless we let him. That Jesus Christ has stripped him. He is a roaring lion, but he cannot defeat us unless we allow him. Because Jesus Christ has spoiled him. He has made, not only spoiled him, but made a show of him openly. That is, he has made a public display of him. Is he talking about the idea of how he's exposed his evil and his methods? That's true, he's done it. Is he talking about how he is defeated before all the hosts of heaven? That's true, that happened. But he has shown us that Satan is vulnerable. Jesus Christ has made a display in giving us the tools, the weapons, the ability to know how to defeat this enemy. Not only did he do that, but he says he triumphed over them. Now, this would make perfect sense to the Colossians who understood Roman world, how the word triumph has the idea of what they would do after a great battle. They would have the triumphal entry. They would march through the city in the victorious army. There would be the general at the lead with his armies, and in the midst would be the enemies on parade that they are a defeated foe. And so Jesus Christ is leading us in this idea of saying, he is, Satan is defeated. You are the victors. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul then later writes, Now be thanks unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. You see, we have victory. 
We have victory through Christ. We don't have to give in. There's, there's not temptations. There's nothing that, that we can add to the work of Christ, not some incantation or some formula. But we can claim victory through Jesus Christ. We're completing him. The Gnostics were coming along and saying, oh, you need to have a spiritual guide who will help you in your victories over, over different temptations. And Paul says, no, you're completing Christ. You're completing Christ. Jesus Christ has given you everything you need. All you need to is employ the weapons he has given. Prayer, resistance, the word of God, the panoply or the armor of God. You and I are complete in Christ in that what rituals and some type of activities that we can do on a religious basis, they can't do for us. Jesus Christ has taken away all of our sins, our penalty, our indebtedness. Jesus Christ has given us the victory to be able to live pure and holy lives. Jesus did it all. Jesus provided everything we need. That's why I entitled the message, Jesus did it all. We are complete in him. Not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. Jesus did it all by paying it all. True story of that hymn that many of you are familiar with. That hymn that came in the middle of the 1800s, 1865, Sunday morning. There in church, it was a hot day. And as the, the congregation had listened to the message, Mrs. Hall was sitting in the choir loft, where she normally sat with others who were part of the church choir. And she was, she was now listening to her pastor close the service. Pastor Shrick had a habit that he would pray long with heads bowed, eyes closed. And so she went into a daydreaming moment. And as she was there daydreaming and thinking and listening to the prayer with one ear, her mind was reflecting on some of the sermon that talked about what Christ had done. And she started formulating some poetry in her mind. She started to hear these words, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch him pray. Find in me your all in all. Lord, now indeed I find your power and thine alone can change the leper's spot and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. By the time she was writing, or she was thinking these words, she thought, I got to pen these down before I forget. So she pulled out a piece of paper and wrote those down. And then the pastor finished his prayer. She afterwards with others was talking to him, and she walked up and she showed him. Probably didn't tell him when she wrote it, but showed him the poem and the words. And he was amazed how beautiful they were and how they fit the sermon. And then he said, hey, wait a minute. Our church organist, Mr. Grape, this week just handed me a tune that he had written and said, if I ever have some cause to use it, make it useful. The two of them, Mrs. Hall, Pastor Schrick, went into the office and they looked at the written melody that, was done, that had been done by Mr. Grape and they looked at the words that she had done and they matched so perfectly in rhyme and meter that not a single phrase or word had to be changed. They fit like a hand in glove. They completed a beautiful, beautiful hymn. Jesus Christ has completed a wonderful, wonderful story of grace in your life. Jesus Christ has done it all, and it fits rhyme and meter. There's nothing anybody can add to it. 
He has given you forgiveness that rituals cannot provide. He has given you victory that nothing else can do for you but Jesus Christ. He is the one who's paid it all. So I ask you these questions as we close. Who or what are you trusting in to get you into heaven? If you're relying upon some type of ritual, some type of activity, you need to trust in Christ. He's the completer. He has given his all to make you complete in him. Who are you relying upon so as to live to please the Lord? Who, who are you turning to when you're battling your temptations? May I ask you this question? Who or what are you following as the head of your life? Jesus should be preeminent because he is not only your creator, he is your completer. He has done all you need. He has given everything you need for your eternal journey as well as your journey in this life. You need to take advantage of what he's provided. If you have yet to call upon Christ, do that this day. If you have to turn to him and ask him for strength and guidance and direction, then do that this day. Take advantage of what he's provided. True story. That in the Tournament of Roses Parade several years ago, there was a beautiful float. It was, it was in competition for the Grand Champion float. It was done by a local organization. And it was for sure going to win. But during the parade, it had a problem. All of a sudden, there is, it was in a prominent part of the parade. It stopped. It sputtered. And it wouldn't move. The problem was, it ran out of gas. The motor that was moving it, they had run out of gas. But if you look closely at the picture, the irony is the float was designed by Standard Oil Company of California that had volumes and volumes of barrels of gasoline that was needed. All the resources that could have provided for everyone in that entire city and parade, but they ran out of gas with their preeminent float. My friend, Jesus Christ has all the resources. Do not... Do not run out of relying upon him. Otherwise, you too will be left by the wayside. Trust Christ. Rely upon him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it means to be complete in Christ. Help me and my friends to take advantage of this wonderful truth. We pray in his name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.